Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. It's good to be back with you, and I apologize for the length of the break between the last episode and now. There's been some continued ongoing health issues here. Uh, We're transitioning to homeschool for our children, which is a big change, as anyone who has done that will uh, attest to. On top of that, also, I'm trying to build up some things on this end, uh, including getting more episodes out to you guys. And one of the things I'm doing is um, I've started to build a Substack, So you can find that in the show notes, and all my podcasts will be posting there as well as wherever you've been listening to them. Uh, and then also I'm going to be posting devotions and articles. Now there's a, there's a way to subscribe there if you wish to support uh, what I'm doing here. Uh, or you can uh, just be a free subscriber to get like free devotions and just uh, keep up with the podcast. I'd really highly recommend you check it out. Um, I'm going to be uh, getting that kind of the momentum of that it's building. So there'll be more um, things coming out on there in the coming weeks. Um, the goal right now is to have a weekly devotion that comes up there. And then uh, again, like uh, focus topic articles, I've got lots of different things in mind. There's no short supply of things to talk about in the craziness of the world that we are uh, currently living in. In fact, that's one of the things I sit down and talk and chat with uh, a man named John Holler about today. Many of you may know him. Uh, John Holler is a semi-retired attorney, uh, trial attorney, who has been teaching and, and prophecy watching uh, for many years. And in fact, funny enough, I live in the same state as John, and I had heard him uh, reference Ohio, which is where I currently live, in a podcast he was doing with someone named Tom Hughes, who runs a ministry called Hope for Our Times, which I will link in the show notes as well, and highly recommend you check them out. And after after I'd heard um, John talk to, to Tom on his program several times, I started watching John Holler's Prophecy Updates on Fellowship Bible Chapel's YouTube page. And my wife and my, my children and I have even been to uh, the church uh, several times and have sat and uh, watched the different Prophecy Updates and, and had a chance to fellowship with the people there. So today I'm just going to sit down with John and have a very casual conversation about many different topics, a little bit about who John is and his background and just um, a lot of the different things that are going on in the world and and, uh, as a church, our view of prophecy. And we really kind of go here, there, and everywhere, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. One last thing I need to mention, I pulled a rookie mistake. It's been a while since I've uh, recorded a podcast and... I somehow forgot to plug in my podcasting microphone, so the uh, computer speakers were picking me up. So John's going to sound great, and I'm going to sound so-so. So I apologize for the sound being a little uh, iffy on my end, but that being said, I hope you enjoy uh, the conversation. Welcome to this late hour, casual conversation. Welcome to this late hour, casual conversation. Welcome to this late hour, casual conversation. Getting real, going deeper, unscripted. Getting real, going deeper, unscripted. Getting real, going deeper, unscripted. I'm your host, 
Casey Knowlton. Well, I'd like to welcome John Holler to this late hour. John, how are you? Great to be with you, Casey. I'm doing well. Doing well. Yeah, you you and I were talking just before uh, I recorded here, and you were mentioning just getting over a bout of COVID. How you doing? You feeling better? Uh, yeah, we're doing good. It, w- it was pretty mild this time. Um, you know, I, I had, uh, this is at least the third time that we've had it. Um. But this was this was by far the mildest. This was like a bad cold. I had a scratchy throat, and then I uh, went out went out to play golf on a very hot day in California, and the first played two holes, and it was like I could I was really getting winded just walking from the golf cart to the green. So I I played five more holes, but it took me about two hours, and I'm a pretty fast golfer, so I mean. I, I've played 18 holes in 51 minutes before. So for me to take two hours for seven holes when nobody else is on the course is pretty amazing. And then and I think I was sort of on the verge of getting a heat stroke. Mm. I never got a fever or anything, but um, I then uh, the next morning was kind of, I, I had hardly could talk, could hardly talk. And I sort of had a uh, short shortness of breath. So, but we, we've got over it, you know, there's a couple of little lingering things this time. Uh, what happened to my wife, uh, the first two times we had it is she lost her sense of taste and smell. I did the first time mm-hmm. for about 10 weeks and hers was not just lost, but it was messed up. So things like steak tasted like something very, very bad. <laughs> and, uh, this for her, you know, it kind of went away and then it came back. And so she really struggled with it for about two and a half years, which is uh, uh, very, I don't know if two and a half years, a couple of years. And it's, it's very, very difficult. I mean, it's, it's just depressing. You can't eat anything. Nothing tastes right. Nothing sounds good. You don't feel like eating. Um, I noticed this time it sort of affected my appetite. I just didn't care if I ate. Uh, but you know, it's, they've got a lot more treatments now for it, antivirals and mm-hmm. we've always taken some of the, uh, the drugs in the recommended package from, uh, alternative medicine. <laughs> yes. They should um, not be named, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, uh, you, we have a supply of it. I, we got some from some friends <laughs> who shall remain nameless and, um, and so everything went well, you know, the antivirals they put you on though are pretty heavy duty medications with some side effects, but we're okay. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> or quick aside. And then uh, I'm going to ask a little more about who you are so people can have a chance to get to know you if they don't know you already. But, um, you know, back in the early uh, onset of the pandemic, uh, my wife's asthmatic and she, she and I both got it quite badly. And basically, so she's calling. This is before there was a lot of information on treatments. So it was early on. And they they said, well, we can't do anything for you. 
basically you just have to wait till you're blue in the face and then you can come to the ER. And we knew if we waited, uh, she could get pneumonia with her asthma. Yeah. So she, she had to, uh, you know, God bless her. She's really good researcher and she doesn't take no for an answer with things like this. So she was researching these old, really old school, uh, uh, medicines from colonial days, they would take uh, mustard plaster, put it on a cloth, you know, heat right. it up and put that on your chest to kind of uh, bring out the infection. And by God's grace, uh, doing that actually is what got her through it. And she never had to go to the hospital. We were about an hour away from going to the hospital. If this didn't work, that was, you know, who knows what would have happened, but really. Yeah. You know, I I've had, a number of friends uh, who didn't come back from the hospital. Some did, some didn't. Yeah, uh, it's a very strange phenomenon. Yeah, I've had the same. I'm, I'm almost seventy years old, and it's like, um, you, you always know that something like this could happen, though. I mean, you know, whether it's engineered or not, or a leak or whatever the cause of it is, um, you know, I think there's a lot of good research out there to indicate that it was a leak. The question is whether it was intentional or not, right? And whether it was designed or not. I I do think I sort of agree with some of the comments that Bobby Kennedy made that it was sort of designed to attack certain racial groups, and mm -hmm. certain racial groups were excluded from that. Of course, the Chinese and that type of thing. But it's been a struggle with people everywhere around the world on how to deal with this thing. Yes. Well. You've been teaching on Prophecy for quite a while. So uh, for those who don't know you in my audience, can you explain uh, who you are and how you came to be involved in, you know, teaching on and prophecy watching? Sure. Um, I grew up in a pastor's home. Uh, my dad was a Grace Brethren pastor uh, for 40 years. He was just getting ready to retire when he passed away in uh, 1991. And he was a big Bible prophecy guy. He had gone to uh, Grace, uh, Bob Jones University and Grace Seminary, mm -hmm. and Grace was a pre-millennial dispensational school. Uh, one of his classmates there was a guy named John Whitcomb. Uh, Whitcomb was uh, one of the co-authors of the Genesis Flood back about, I think it came out about 1960. Mm -hmm. And so and, and so we always had these, Dad would have these conferences and people would come and, you know, John Whitcomb would come and, you know, they, they'd come over to the house for dinner or after the, after they spoke. I mean, you used, to, I don't know if how you grew up, but I grew up in a evangelical church. We lived in a parsonage across the street from the church till I was about 13. Then they bought one that was about two or three blocks away. But, you know, growing up for me, the church was almost like an extension of the house. Yeah. You know, so if, I was always having to go over there. Um, you know, my sister would go over there and practice, take piano lessons and that type of thing. And every now and then we'd make, we'd go over and get something out of the basement in the dark, which I could, uh, I could get up the steps and all the way around the corner of the building and hear the door shut behind me because I was running for my life. Um, <laughs> you know, as an eight year old, I, I sort of learned how to do that, but, um, and I can remember like what some of the earliest memories I have is uh, the bedroom that my brother and I shared uh, upstairs in the house. Look, you could not see dad's office because the church, the front of the church blocked it, 
but like on Sunday morning, you would wake up at like two, three in the morning and you could see the fluorescent lights on in his office. They were, you know, lighting up the parking lot. Uh, Cause he would always go over and do final sermon prep and teaching prep. And, and he just didn't teach on Sunday. He taught Sunday night. He taught Wednesday night. Mm-hmm. He often did radio programs and that type of thing, which is, you know, as, as someone who, you know, I prepare now, it's pretty amazing. And he was very meticulous the way he, maintained his uh sermon notes uh i still have some of them but he kept all the sermon notes in these little half notebooks half page sized notebooks and he organized them by topic book bible prophecy you know series on characters of the bible and that type of thing and he always wrote in there when he gave them so and i remember like you know, he, he always said, you know, as a kid growing up there, I, he was taught in his church, the First Brethren Church of Dayton, Ohio. Uh, there at the time, it was on the west side of Dayton, about a mile away from the Wright Brothers uh, sh- bicycle shop. So so that would have been growing up in the 20s, about 20 years after the Wright Brothers, you know, had left the fame and wow. starting flight. That's great. So he was he was born in 23. They they discovered flight or had the you know were able to accomplish the first power flight i think in in 1903 so you know he kind of grew up in that neighborhood mm-hmm. and it was it was a working class neighborhood in dayton his dad was an electrician um but he had a good pastor i mean and there were a lot of young guys grew up in that church that went into the pastorate um dad uh through his his pastor uh, dr russell barnard he became very enamored with foreign missions and served for many years on the Grace Brethren Foreign Mission Board. And there were other people. Um, there was his best friend growing up became a, a chaplain um, in the Navy. And uh, he just stayed in the Navy after World War II. And then I, I had an uncle uh, who also grew up in that church and he was in seminary um, married to my my father's sister and i was just doing a little research on this the other night and he um they had a child they had a uh, a girl uh, in fact she just passed away last year but uh and a, and a boy but my aunt mary was three months pregnant when uncle rodney got pancreatic cancer and died hmm. so my my cousin grew up never never meeting his father and uncle rodney was uh of course, I never met him. I came along a couple of years later, but uh, you know, he was 27 years old when he died. And right. uh, but he came from that church, and so there was this something going on in that church where all these young men wanted to go into the ministry full time. So, Dad loved Bible prophecy. I remember in the 1967 war, because um, you know, he was big on Israel, always talking about Israel, the prophetic significance of the rebirth of the nation of Israel. <clears throat> Uh, and I agree with that. So, 1967, I I have his notes, you know, where he was he talked for several weeks about what happened in the Six Day War. Um, and so I it was it was interesting. I went to Israel in 19 in 2017. We went over there. I think it was our third or fourth trip. Excuse me, I gotta keep my uh, whistle wet. No, that's fine. But um, 
but we um uh, so in 2017, we went over because it was the 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War. And that was kind of a, I was 13 years old when that happened. I kind of remember at night, we had a very interesting trip. Um, we spent some time, uh, some friends provided uh, uh, the ability for Joel Kramer. Uh, we stayed in our, some friends, uh, wonderful great friend's uh, apartment in Jerusalem, about one block from the old city. And then they also uh, provided that uh, we would be able to tour around for a number of days with Joel Kramer. And I don't know if you know Joel Kramer, but I, I had taken biblical archaeology in college, so I've always kind of had an interest in it. Uh, my professor for biblical archaeology at Grace does College. He have, does he have a YouTube channel? What's that? Does Joel Kramer? Am I thinking of the guy who has a YouTube channel? And does yeah, he has a he has a YouTube channel called Expedition Bible. Oh, I watch it all the time. He did a great video on Babylon and the curses up against Babylon. Yeah, he he probably he probably has ten times the number of subscribers that we have on Fellowship Bible Chapel, <laughs> and that he he's only been on. I think he's only been on YouTube for a couple of years. I'd highly recommend uh, people to go to Expedition Bible, and you can also go to. YouTube and just type in Joel Kramer Shechem, Joel Kramer Hebron. Yes. And people have sort of videoed. They're not the best quality videos, but they've they've uh videoed Joel what what Joel did with us. You know, we went to Qumran, we went to Shechem, we went to uh Jacob's Well, we went to Mount Gerizim, Samaria, Hebron, Shiloh. Uh, the tomb of the patriarchs and that type of thing, and it, so in in that every time I've gone to Israel, first time was 1995. It's really had an impact on me. So I would say in 1995, I was uh, you know I was about 41 years old on our first trip, and I I was kind of um I and I would guess I was I was sort of in a dry spell in my walk with the Lord. I mean, I wasn't doing anything wrong. It's just that I was very busy at work. I was traveling all the time as a trial lawyer. And so I, uh, but that trip really uh, hit me with the reality of the historicity of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. I remember just one day we were, uh, was up in the Galilee we started, we were staying in a hotel on uh, the Sea of Galilee in Tiberias. And so we went up, we went up to the Mount of Beatitudes and we went up to the Golan Heights and we went to the Tagba, the, the place of the, the loaves and fishes. And we sort of later in the day before we took the boat ride across the Sea of Galilee back to Tiberias, we ended up in Capernaum. And I remember going over and just kind of sitting down on a rock an old, I think it was an old wine press or olive press. And uh, I mean, I really, I, it really moved me to tears because it just sort of hit me that all the stuff is really real in the Bible. And it just, it just sort of converged on me there. So, I mean, everybody has a different experience, but I'm just saying that for me, that was kind of a wake up call. And on that um, uh, call, there was a, a younger, a young guy, uh, probably young enough to be my son, by the way, but he was um, on the trip and he said, Hey, have you ever heard of this guy named Chuck Missler? Um, I said, no, I haven't heard of him. So that's 1995. So he gave me a T Chuck Missler tape on 
the Gog Magog War of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And so if you never really heard, I think a lot of people identify with Chuck. You know, sure. Chuck became a friend. I didn't agree with him on all the stuff that he said or did or whatever he eventually ended up. But, you know, Chuck was a business guy, but he taught Bible. He was a business guy, but he taught Bible prophecy. Mm-hmm. And so he brought a very sort of different perspective to it than, um, than you know, pastors just had sometimes that got maybe a little bit of tunnel vision. Chuck kind of came at it from a whole different way. So I started listening to Chuck. I eventually got to meet him. I did a show on WRFD one summer during the Y2K days in 1999. And I got to meet a lot of guys like Dave Hunt and Chuck Missler and other guys during that. And then we, uh, my wife's uh, mother got remarried. Her father had died. She got remarried in 1999 and they split their time between California and Ohio. Um, they were, he was an old family friend from years ago. His wife had passed away. So uh, we started spending a lot of time in Southern California. So I, through that, I got to sort of renew, uh, we were out there a lot. I met Bill Koenig. I don't know if you've heard of Bill Koenig, watch.org, uh, became a very good friend. He said, well, you know, I do this conference at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills with David Hawking, like two years out of three. So that I went there and I started meeting other people that were there and we spent a lot of time in Phoenix. And there, there was a good Calvary Chapel there, uh, pastored by uh, John Higgins, who is one of the original Calvary Chapel guys with Chuck Smith. And they were just focused a lot on Bible prophecy. So I, I just, maybe I'm just a pushy guy. I got to meet a lot of these guys. And so I sort of revived my interest in it, started studying. And then I started teaching a large class in a large church. And I would do like a prophecy update and Bible teaching. And so over time, the prophecy update started taking more time because more and more things happen. Right. So in 2013, we left that church. We helped start Fellowship Bible Chapel. Uh, we bought property about five years ago up in Sunbury, Ohio, which I used to joke with all the people at the church we used to go to who lived in Sunbury. Why do you live in Sunbury? Now I'm helping teach and pastor at a church in Sunbury. It's kind of ironic. But um, in 2013, uh, just before we we left and started the church, I had started to put some, some the stuff up, recordings, audio recordings on YouTube. And part of it was just so people in the class that missed, they said, you know, we missed last week. Is there something you can do to keep us, uh, you know, caught up? Right. And so I, w- I was burning DVDs. I was making tapes. I was doing, it was just, it was crazy. And then this wonderful thing called YouTube came along. So we started putting stuff on YouTube. And that first year putting stuff up uh, with the church and everything, maybe putting up one or two things a week. We got like 17,000 views the whole year of 2013. And it just, I I think it's a God thing. Um, the Lord, you know, we never promoted it. We never advertised it. And it just seemed people started sharing it on social media. It seemed to resonate with some people. Uh, and so now we're probably getting into millions of views um, each year. It's interesting you, you mentioned that because I, I think everyone, well, I don't want to say everyone, but I think a, a lot of people instinctively sense something is going on, that this is a very significant time. Mm-hmm. 
And so they're being drawn to, well, what does the Bible say about, you know, the times we're in? Does it have any answers? And, and right. you know, some of these people are Christians and already know to look there. But I, here's an interesting question for you, John. What do you make sure. of pastors, uh, even other, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ who just seemingly have no value or see no value in biblical prophecy or eschatology? What do you think? What do you think is driving that? Well, I think in part, you know, there there is this thing called the normalcy bias, so that even even if the world is falling apart, uh, I'm sure there were probably people in Germany in World War II who thought, well, you know, it's really not that bad. Okay, you know, I mean, we can't buy gas for the car every week, but it's it's life is still pretty normal, and I even struggle with that too because my life is pretty normal, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I still have a few cases, things that I'm handling as a lawyer, but you know, that, that part of my life is pretty much over. You know, I'm, I'm never going to take on a big case, uh, at this stage of my career, at least that I, I maybe I shouldn't say that so definitively that, you know, cause then certainly then something will happen. Um, so and, you know, somebody will actually bring me a really important case, uh, but the, the chances of that are pretty slim. But even I say a lot of times, you know, like my life, I said this, I think I said this when I talked to Tom Hughes at Hope for Our Times. Um, there was a, I think he played the interview, I think it was yesterday. I lose track of time. You know, when you're, when you're not working every day, you sort of like, okay, which, you know, which, which day feels more like Saturday? than you know it used to be um when no, no, no day ever felt like saturday now it's like it's kind of hard to remember what day of the week it is <laughs> but so I, I think i interview at, at hope for our times with tom was yesterday and i said i you know my life is pretty normal i i talk about a lot of things that are pretty dark you know pretty mm-hmm. uh they can be overwhelming i'll admit that you know so if if you can't take it listen for 10 minutes and go away and come back later, you know? Uh, but I'm, I'm more about truth than I am about people's comfort. Hmm. So, and I think, you know, the Bible always has these warnings about the fact that people are going to, you know, Timothy, it talks about gathering unto them teachers, you know, itching ears that hmm. will satisfy what, tell them what they want to hear. And this is a big problem in the church today. Um, what what claims to be the church? I wonder how much of it is the real church. To be honest with you, but um, so I, a couple of years ago, I did a conference in Calgary. I actually did it live in May, uh, Last Days Bible Conference. I think I talked four or five times. You can get it Last Days Bible Conference on YouTube. Mm-hmm. But for that conference two years ago. I sort of came up with because um, I've been talking about all these things and I've tried to depict things graphically. I, I kind of like images. One of the things I tried to do as a trial lawyer was to try to, uh, particularly if I had a complex financial case, I tried to put up graphics so they could kind of understand how the money flowed or was supposed to flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because people are going to, people are very visual now. And so I was doing this a long time ago. By the way, as a trial lawyer, I did a I did a talk at a conference in California in 2001. 
it was really like six weeks before 9-11. And I talked about the what I thought was going to be the coming effect of postmodernism on the church, where truth was very relative. Truth was based on your experience. Mm. And uh, I actually got pushback from some pastors at that after that talk. Hmm. And yet here we are. Yeah. And and so the because they they said, well, John, you don't understand postmodernism. I'm like, well, what do you mean I don't understand postmodernism? Maybe you don't. Uh, they said, well, it'll be a good thing for the church because people are asking questions. But, you know, asking questions, that's that's just kind of a, a postmodern trap to just avoid getting to the truth of the matter. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I started working and, and teaching on, apolo- you know, so I was teaching a class. I was doing apologetics and Bible prophecy and that type of thing. But back to Calgary two years ago, I did a conference, was online, of course, because we couldn't get into Canada because of the Canadian government restrictions. And I, um, I sort of developed a grid about how I sort of the major themes of what I see in Bible prophecy that are happening. So I think there is a fair amount of confusion out there. Um, I will note that um, I have, you know, opinions on timing of the rapture and all of this other stuff. But I think the thing we need to be willing to admit is that when we when we talk about these future events that are set forth in the Bible, they're future events. They have not yet happened. And I think the last three years, so two years ago when I was doing the Calgary talk, the first one, mm-hmm. I was sort of thinking like, now, wait a minute, you know, we've just gone through a year where the world changed. Mm-hmm. And I think within the Bible prophecy community of teachers, a lot of great guys, you know, everybody's trying to figure it out. Nobody really called it. So I think sometimes Bible prophecy sort of unfolds and we understand that it's unfolded and been fulfilled after the fact. So let me give you an example of that. So, in Matthew, it talks about there's this passage that says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, calls name Emmanuel. Mm-hmm. And that's based on a prophecy in Isaiah. And if you go to look at the prophecy in Isaiah, I'll be honest with you, kind of like even knowing that this Matthew told us this is that which this, you know, the birth of Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. I'm, you know, you're looking at what it says in Isaiah and it's like, I'm not, how did they get in there? And then my question was, were people running around Judah looking for people from the line of David uh, saying, are there any pregnant virgins around? And I I don't see that there's any historical evidence that they were. But after the fact, they were able to say, oh, this is that. That's what what that was about. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to understand that when we talk about future events, they're not facts yet. And what happens is a lot of people get sort of wedded to their idea. Mm -hmm. And then the facts on the ground may say, wait, it's just not going to work out that way. Not that you were totally wrong. Okay. I think there's, there's certainly room in this whole thing with the prophetic scriptures for what I would call righteous speculation. But I, I don't think that 
right, right. I don't think that being incredibly dogmatic and divisive over your particular eschatological view is going to um, win over a lot of people. That's just, this is just my opinion. So look, I, I do conferences with the guys. I don't agree with them on a lot of stuff mm-hmm. and they don't agree with me, but in the end, we're sort of all in this together and we're all trying to figure it out. So I kind of came up with this grid that uh, prophecy is pattern in Jewish scripture. So what happened before will happen again. And it, it might be more clear than it was before. So there probably was the historical thing that Isaiah was talking about a young woman conceiving, but then it became very clear in the end. Um trying to think of another prophecy where that might be. Well, that's a really uh, good example. If I'm not mistaken, uh, many of the first century Jews would basically say, Hey, God's only son is Israel. So how, how dare you suggest other? Yeah. But did they, did they come up with that as a response to the Christian saying, this is the way the Christian Christianity developed saying, this is that which was prophesied. And they didn't like that. I mean, there, there's a lot of, uh, my friend Doug Woodward, Woodward has done um, a pretty good book called Rebooting the Bible, where he goes back and looks at how uh, maybe the Masoretic text is not the best way to get what the Hebrew was talking about because it's been tampered with a bit. Mm-hmm. And But the Septuagint seems to be pretty accurate. So anyway, that um, so I, I just think we need to be sort of humble in the way we approach this. And so the prophecy is pattern thing kind yeah. of works this way. Yeah. I'm really glad you said that because um, that's something I mention often on the podcast is like, we are dealing with prophecy here. We have to, you know, approach it in humility and we, we can't get dogmatic and kind of, you know, what's very classically happened in, in the church is you have everyone break off into their own little groups of this denomination and that yeah. logical position and this and that and the other thing. And one of the things I want to see uh, and encourage is, um, you know, we, we politely disagree on different things, but we still in the end are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are pursuing the truth together and looking toward uh, the hopeful return of Christ. Yeah. And I, and I will say I, I belong to some prophecy groups on facebook i don't participate very much i sort of uh read them occasionally and get depressed <laughs> um not in the sense the the vitriol that's thrown around mm-hmm. in, in cases where you you believe in the work of jesus christ you believe full prophecy you believe the israel you believe uh in a coming rapture you believe in a coming kingdom you're premillennial and you know and so but because you disagree on one point the vitriol is just, it's, it's not godly. Right. And so I try not to do that. Okay. Now, look, there are certain things where I'm going to be pretty strong and dogmatic. For example, I, I used to talk um, a lot about the emerging church, postmodernism and that type of thing. And I really came down hard on Rob Bell. I don't usually use the H word, but <laughs> you know, with a guy like, Bell, I think the H word is is uh, probably definitely appropriate, hmm. and um, so I I think that. But you're mentioning about all the different denominations that have kind of come about as people 
agree or disagree on things. So, so I grew up in a Grace Brethren tradition. But when you look at the Brethren tradition, the Brethren, Brethren tradition, which really started in the early 1600s, I think, and is either seven, maybe it was 1700s, 1700s in German, Schwarzenau, Germany. And so the, the small group came to America, you know, they, they didn't like the way the Reformation was going. And so they, they believed in adult believer baptism. And so that there are a few things to think distinctives. And so they came to America as they've come to America, they divided into about seven different groups. Mm-hmm. Now there's some efforts being made to put them back together. And I not really part of the brother movement anymore, but um, I, I can remember there was, I believe one of the splits happened in the late 1800s and it was over two groups that were arguing about how many buttons a man was allowed to have on a shirt. Oh, good grief. And so that, you know, uh, five buttons was a, a sort one group accused the other of being proud by having too many buttons and they, they literally split. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> So in some, you know, it's just, it's unfortunate, but sometimes by splitting there's, they become more effective because they're able to achieve more growth. So there can be growth by division. But when you say these thing about there's, you know, there's this research, I I see the number float around that there's 40,000 different evangelical denominations. And I just, I don't believe that. I believe that number is way overstated and that, but I unless you're talking about eschatology and then you're talking at least 85,000 different denominations because everybody has an opinion on it. And because I have, you know, sort of attracted a following, I guess people send me stuff. I mean, I have books and books and books and charts and graphs and handwritten things and all these people who do this, I mean, you can tell, man, they really love the Lord. They love the scripture and everything, and they're trying to figure it out. Um, And and I am too. You know, we're all all sort of on this journey. And Daniel has this passage in Daniel chapter 12 says, you know, Daniel, see up the book. Daniel says, what does all this mean? I don't understand this. And Daniel 80 says, I don't understand what this is that's going on. And he's told a couple times, seal up the book until the time of the end. Then knowledge, people will run to and fro. Knowledge will increase. And the wise will understand and instruct many. So there's this thing that I think we should, as a friend of mine says, we should jealously guard the people who are digging into the scripture and trying to figure this stuff out. Mm -hmm. And not as a way to like separate with them over that, but to learn let's all learn this together. And and so that's, that's what I try to do. And I'll admit, I'm not perfect at it. And there are some times where there's, there's a line that gets crossed and you just have to say, I can't, I can't go along with that. So that's, I think if there's one thing that I'm trying to do is to try to just sort of guard myself from getting caught up in that. Got to divide, got to divide, got to divide, got to divide. There's some times when you got to, but I, I remember my, you know, there was this, there was a split in the Grace Brethren um, the year after my father passed away. And I'm not so sure that God didn't call dad home because I, I think it would have broke him up mm-hmm. uh, to watch that. And now, I mean, I'm looking at it 30 some years later and I'm like, I don't even really remember what it was all about. 
did someone have too many buttons on their shirt? No, nah, it was it was over some theological issues, and and I think there were some valid concerns. Uh, and look, you know, I I I left. I had concerns uh, when I was on the board of Grace about the direction of particularly the spiritual formation program in the seminary. And I'm on the board, and I think I've always viewed one of my roles on the board was to protect the historic theological basis of the institution. Mm-hmm. And I thought that this was undermining that on, I, I don't know how else to say it, an epic scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I wrote a big paper about it and I don't know that it was well received. Some people did, some people didn't. Um, and I eventually, I was asked to resign from the board. So I did. I'd been on the board for about 25 years total at that point. And, you know, that's okay. You know, they've, they've gone on uh, probably to greater success than they had when I was on the board. And and that's fine. But I'm still concerned about the direction of that program and the direction of that program in many institutions, many evangelical seminaries, particularly. Uh, and then things keep being brought in like the Enneagram and things that are just absolute pagan in origin. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just accepted throughout not only seminaries, but the evangelical church. So one of the talks I did a couple of years ago at Calgary was on the Enneagram um, because it's, it's just, it's just awful. And it's part of this mysticism that's coming in. It's, it's sort of a, bringing in Roman Catholic mysticism. So anyway, I just, I just think that it's a very, it's a very unique time to be alive. Um, Yes. I did say to my stepfather-in-law out in California, he's 96 and we had not been able to see him for four years because of this Charlie Vector thing that's been going around. (laughs) But I did say, you know, for lack of a better term, I said, you know, Tom, I'm glad when I look at what's going on in the world, then I'm an old fart, which means I'm not going to be around here forever if the Lord tarries. And he goes, man, I'm so glad of that every day. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm ready to go. And it, it, so I think you get that perspective. So, so I did. So, like I said, so one of the back to the prophecy is pattern, by the way, I mentioned Joel Kramer, got to mention his book where God came down. Mm-hmm. Um, by Joel Kramer, get it. It's, you know, you can get it at Amazon and that type of thing. I don't get a commission or anything like that, but I think it will help you piece together the historicity, the archeological verification of important parts of scripture. And I'm sure this is part one of many parts. And this is, I, when looking through the book, some of the, when, when you do a tour with Joel, uh, and hopefully I, I'm going to try to do a tour of Israel in the not too distant future. But, you know, one of my goals will be to go to these sites in the biblical heartland. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of tours, they sort of circle the biblical heartland. And uh, now there's I think there's more tours going to Shiloh, which is good. It's more open up. But Shechem is hard to get to. A lot of people don't. I, I know people who've been to Israel many, many times, never been to Hebron to the Tomb of the Patriarchs, uh, the Cave of Machpelah, and the ancient Tell at uh, Hebron, and it's it's a divided city. I mean, I was down there in this, this past December, and we wanted to go up to a place called Mamre, which is where Abraham got the promise 
the three angels showed up and God, Yahweh met Abram by the Oaks of Mamre. Hmm. And you can go to that place. It's It's been preserved historically. Herod built there, uh, just like he built at Machpelah, to sort of commemorate these important events in biblical history, in the history of Israel, and and what we would, I think, sort of just call Jewish history now. That's sort of the way the term has developed. And they're real places. I mean, they're and, and you drive to Mamre, you got to go through all these drive around these checkpoints and everything because the citizens of Israel cannot go there because of the division and the land. It's they're not allowed by law to go there. They're not allowed to go to Shechem. It's to me, it's a scandal. But we as Christians can go and we can go tell them about the truth of those places. And what's really there and what the archaeological evidence is. So where God came down. But back to this thing. So the Jewish, I sort of had these rabbit trail tendencies, as you probably know from listening to me. (laughs) But so the first point that I talked about in my talk in Calgary two years ago was that there's this acceleration that's going to happen. And that's because what happened at the first coming of Jesus prophetically will be that pattern will repeat itself, not the specific prophecies, but the way they unfolded in the, in the fact that when you look at all the prophecies that were fulfilled at the first coming of Jesus, about 60% of them were fulfilled in the Passion Week between the triumphal, you know, the, around the time of the triumphal entry on what we call Palm Sunday up through his death, burial, resurrection, and then his ascension to heaven. 40 days later, and then Pentecost. And so there's just this tremendous acceleration of the prophecies being fulfilled. Yeah, I have to confess I do, which whether it's right or wrong, I don't, I can't know because it's, like you said, in the future, but uh, I do favor or have leanings toward, you know, uh, based on what we see with Christ fulfilling the feasts, um, a possible something significant let's say happening on rosh hashanah so i i do tend to get a little excited the feast of trumpets yes yeah and so but listen so that that's another example so how were the how were the and i object to this thing that they're the feast of israel they're the feast of the lord they're the feast are there to teach us about our messiah our savior our lord mm-hmm. and so i think consigning them over to just Israel or Jewish people is sort of short-sighted and and you have to decide people have to decide how they're going to celebrate or remember the feast, but certainly they're important to the study, but the pattern is there because those feasts were all fulfilled in one calendar cycle. Hmm. So that's the spring feast. The fall feast will be fulfilled. Well, now if they fulfilled in one calendar cycle and the first coming, Will they not be fulfilled in one calendar cycle in the second coming? And now that upends a lot of people's timelines and charts and graphs and all that stuff. But I'm pretty convinced of that. And I I personally do believe the way this redemptive thing of Israel and everything fits into this, that uh, the second coming will come on a day of atonement. Hmm. Yeah. So, and 10 days before that is Rosh Hashanah and the period in, between is called is known as the days of all. I mean, that's how the people of Israel described it. 
So what does that mean? How does that fit into prophetic history? And, and I'm sort of working through that. Here's a question. So and this, I know, probably drives our pre-trip friends crazy, but, um, you know, I'm I'm quite convinced that we may be entering very soon or may have already entered the time of the seven seals. And that's, you know, obviously holding a pre-wrath view, that's part of what that entails. But just, I mean, I, I see... I mean, everywhere in the news, you know, uh, you know, someone given authority, you know, there's several examples I could give of that with King Charles, with the uh, the who uh, and the authority they were given. And there's some other examples as well. You've got um, uh, peace mm-hmm. taken from the earth. I mean, how many examples could I give from that? You have uh, the issue of inflation and and um, starvation and, and, and famine. I mean, I mean, so, you know, just, in the, yeah, the just great- in the last couple of weeks, we've we've had. Uh, Russia uh, and the Ukraine war. You, I mean, Ukraine is a very significant agricultural country. Agricultural country. Uh, there was an article at the Atlantic, which is a you know, don't rec- just because I recommend something from the Atlantic doesn't mean I agree with everything they say. Because I try to learn from, you know, I read the New York Times, I read the Financial Times, and um, because you you can kind of learn how to get past the propaganda because there are facts buried in there um in all the spin and everything but so we've just seen that there's been this uh the atlantic article was ukraine could fill, feed the world and you know if properly managed ukraine maybe could feed the world that's how significant it is agriculturally but now we have this destruction of the oil gas system that's necessary for fertilizers we have you know ukraine's a big country on fertilizer russia's a big country on fertilizer and Russia's gone in and, um, you know, they had a grain deal for a while and somebody uh, blew up a very important bridge of Russia. Now, I, I think it's been repaired, but Russia in response to that has pretty much obliterated the grain exporting capabilities of Ukraine. And they can't get it out by rail. It, it, it only goes out by ship. That's the only way to get it out of there. There's there's just not a rail system to do it, and particularly in the in the course of a war. So now, you know, we we may have had, and I always talk about these things in long term, you know, without I don't want people to think, oh, well, John Howard doesn't think the Lord could return soon. And I'm like, no, no, I really think he could. But I'm just sort of looking at in the long-term trends. Ukraine is effectively destroyed as an agricultural force in the world for a generation. And we need to process that mm-hmm. because they're, you know, you're, you're talking in some cases, 10, 15, 20% of the particular foodstuffs come from Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And Russia is a fairly important agricultural country too. And now Ukraine has been attacking some of their major ports on the Black Sea. And the problem is going to be that nobody, no, in, in Russia can't, Russia cannot pivot to get that stuff out on on their grains and everything. They can't do it by rail. They're they're at capacity for rail. Their other ports are too far away. And so now you have a lot of food locked up and then you have a lot of gas and oil locked up in Russia. You know, Russia's some people describe Russia's, you know, a country attached to a gas tank, a, a you know, a gas uh, a fuel tank. Mm-hmm. And it it is. I mean, they have uh you know they're they're up there in the top three 
in oil and gas. But now, you know, some of their, the, the shipping and a lot of that's, they can't use the pipelines across Ukraine. They haven't developed up or other pipelines. They get stuff that comes from like, say, Turkmenistan or Kazakhstan that comes by pipeline to the Caspian Sea, then across that to another port of Russia on the Black Sea or the Sea of Azov. And now with Ukraine attacking those ships, which they've done over the last week, um, that puts all of that at risk because you you can't get insurance. You pay a small percentage of insurance of your of the value of your house or car for insurance each year. But when you're in the midst of a war, that insurance cost goes up by a hundred times. Or for example, today, uh, how this is one of these weird things. Like I've been to Maui. Okay. Part, part of Maui is incredibly dry as dry as anything you've ever seen. But part of it is as lush as anything on the planet. Mm-hmm. And, and they're like, you, you can take a drive around Haleakala and you can, you can see the line where it's green on one side and brown on the other, where the weather is blocked. And so it's like the worst desert you've ever seen right after you've driven through a rainforest. <laughs> and uh, that it's so, but today Maui, I mean, Lahaina has been effectively destroyed by wildfire. Mm-hmm. The city on the ocean, the, the ships were burning in the Harbor, the crew, you know, the, pleasure craft and tour boats and and ferries and that type of thing and this is hawaii yeah okay so do you think anybody's going to get insurance tomorrow to protect their property in maui <laughs> ain't ain't gonna happen yeah you know i i've i i uh my fear is with because there have been a big uptick in natural disasters and my concern is that people are going to just fall into sort of the climate alarmism um you know and my conviction is these are significant birth pains we're watching as we're getting very close to fulfillment of scripture believe me i get sent stuff and i read it directed energy weapons and harp and we're controlling the weather and all that type of thing and i take a very cautious approach to that much to the chagrin of some of my friends because what was one of the messianic signs when Jesus calmed the storm? Remember the disciples' reaction was, "What manner of men is this that even the winds and the, the waves wind. obey him?" Yeah. And so, and then we also know that there are these judgments and birth pangs and that type of thing. They're all wrapped up in this end times thing that really come from God. And so, I, I I'm reluctant to give a give people credit all over the world for it. I think there's clearly there are things going on, but I think there's a religion that's developed up around the climate. Yes. Um, where science doesn't matter. Well, so, when, when someone's taking up, you know, the, the, the climate activist version of the 10 commandments to what I believe is the fake Mount Sinai and right. them, you know, you have a religion. This is an orthodoxy. This is a, a cult. It goes beyond any kind of concern of the environment right. or stewardship or any of those things. This is a this is a madness. But when you when you bring that up, though, that's when a lot of people their normalcy bias kicks in. It's not that bad. It's happened before. Hmm, yes, and I remember bad heat waves. I mean, I can remember going to 
school when it was 102 degrees in Canton, Ohio in, in the fall, you know, and I can remember going to school when it was, you know, 20 below in the winter. So, um, <laughs> I saw a picture the other day. It was a picture of some people like trekking up Mount Everest and the caption they put on the, the little mem they made up for Twitter or Facebook was finally, we've uh, found a photo of our parents on their way to school when they were children. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, so, and so there's been extreme weather all the time, but I'm just telling you is that it's the, so that's, I have the acceleration, all these things happening all at once. And then the convergence, all of these happening at the same time and yeah. accelerating at the yeah. same time. And it, it works on the economy. It works on food. It works on uh, banking it's, system. It's virtually every category of our lives is, is there's some elements that you could bring back to prophecy or, you know, right. Heading towards I, something prophetic. And I don't think that that's ever happened in human history. And I, because I know, my, I know how my father was and how he tracked these things. And he would be like, his head would be exploding right now. I know that I, and it was interesting. So when I came back from Hebron and Israel back in 2017, I pulled out his notes uh, because it, because uh, I was going to talk on Father's Day about this. And I looked at the notes and it was interesting that he was talking about the same topics 50 years ago on the same calendar date on Father's Day that I was talking about them. Mm. It was just, again, it was one of these kind of, kind of a convergence thing in my own personal life. Uh, so I, I do think it's I do think it's significant. But look, I've been I've been talking about this now for uh, 25 years, you know, in in public, you know, publicly where other people can listen in for at least 10. Um, it's um, and so I, I'm sometimes amazed. I often wonder if my somebody goes dies and goes to heaven and says, hey, you know, your kid, your son's got a fairly popular Bible prophecy talk. And, and my dad says, my kid, you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, cause it, it's sort of the, the thing that the, the advice he gave me was like, you know, don't screw up and embarrass me. That's what should, that's, should be one of your goals in life. Yeah. That, that whole idea of normalcy bias, going back to that really fast. Uh, sure. It's one of the things I would call skepticism versus discernment. And, and that's in relation to the church, not, not unbelievers, of course. But I remember speaking with a friend and he said, well, you know, cause I was basically trying to make a case for, Hey, the hour's really late. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious to me. Well, you know, back in world war two, they would have thought it was nearing the end too. And, you know, I kind of just chuckled to myself thinking, well, you, you know, you realize that because of world war two and the Holocaust, I mean, that is the, that was the turning point for why, the Jews started to be regathered to Israel. And so well, it's where it's where it caused an acceleration. Yes. And so there's this idea that even in church, um, you know, many dear believers have this sort of view that God is always far off instead of realizing he's coming soon. Right. And yeah, we don't we don't know when and it, it could be a while. Um, and, you know, look, sometimes I'm surprised, but, you know, so many times I hear people have been talking about Bible prophecy, teaching, doing conferences and that type of thing. They go like, you know, I, I never thought I'd see this. They say that we say that all the time. 
I never thought I'd see the day. Well, now you have seen the day. So what are we going to do about it? Um, and so I'm, I'm sitting here looking at, uh, as we're talking, I'm sort of just scrolling through uh, tomorrow, the financial times for tomorrow. And it's like, <laughs> it's, it's just crazy. You know, the economy, the banks, bank warnings. And then you have like this insanity. Like, so they, they, they bring in, the wind is falling apart, wind farms for electricity. It's just, it's collapsing. And, and despite the fact that it doesn't work, you need a continuous baseload of power from power plants for electricity. But wind and solar only operate maybe 10% of the time at best. What do you do the 90% of the time that they're not operating? And so now we, we're like in gutting our energy grids and it's just like it's it's insane here's one record bank loan losses yeah every day false every day and commercial properties collapsing i there's a guy who does these videos casey uh i don't know if you've ever seen them just saw one last night a couple of them last night and they're they're videos of nothing it's sort of like a seinfeld show but they're videos of incredible information. So four years ago, I went to a conference on uh, a CLE conference in San Francisco. And it's probably the last I've said this It's probably the last time I'll ever go there because the city was looking like it was falling apart. Then he walks down market street, which is like the major commercial thoroughfare in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And then he walks up Powell street which is another major commercial thing. And I've been there. 95% of every shop and business is closed. Hmm. These are, these are videos from the last month. This, I mean, San Francisco was one of the most vibrant, active cities that you could go to New York, the same way. And now it's just like, it's like all being ripped apart. And I mean, it is storefront. I mean, I, I went to a conference right in the middle of all this. Hotels are closing in mm-hmm. San Francisco, which was one of the, you know, arguably one of the most successful cities in the United States. Well, one of the other things, I, I don't know if you saw this, but this this has been common now. And it kind of goes back to, you know, Charlie Vector 019er. But uh, just how there's this con- constant push for passports, digital IDs, so on and so forth. Uh, do you know what uh, Luciferon, I think that's how you say it, Luciferon. Luciferase? I can't even say it right. It's, it's the um, the chemical inside fireflies that gives it that luminescence. Sure. Yeah, but, it's used It's used in different devices. Sometimes as a, you know, they might put it into something sort of like a marker so they can see how your blood is flowing or something like that. So... Right, and I don't, I don't know necessarily how they've. Luciferase, of, I think it's it's called something like that. I don't know how they've necessarily harnessed it or whatever, uh, but this is an, an article I saw just a, a day or two ago. Is that they're taking whatever this is, the Lucifer's light, we'll call it, and they're they're talking about how they're going to use this chemical um, to basically check people for vaccination status. Yeah, there's 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 been a a um, a lot of there's been a lot of talk about that, sure. And I mean that was I, I mean just the 
the idea that this, you know, the, the, the chemical has the name Lucifer in it, and then they're also going to be using it for something that will be able to check your status for this, you know, whatever particular medicines you have or have not taken, which obviously could lend to, can you buy or sell? I just, I find it interesting and that's not, you know, exclusively on that issue. There's also other areas where this has come up of this, this idea of, well, unless you have whatever it is, you're not going to be able to buy or sell. Yeah. So there's there, that's, that's sort of where this acceleration and convergence is going. And, you know, so they're talking about how, how do we do this? And, you know, it was just in Scotland. I went to pay for something at a big store and said, uh, you need to get your credit card approved. Somebody will be over in a minute. And as the guy's walking over, all of a sudden I see my, a picture of myself on the screen mm-hmm. in the store. And a guy comes over and says, okay, yeah, you're okay. He looks at my, I don't know what he looked at, but, and uh, he approved it. And so I walk out of the store and I thought, oh, I forgot to get, I wanted to get some water. So I go back in and get the water and I come up. And now as I come up to the thing, my my picture pops up on the, the screen of the checkout, self-checkout. The one that I just had taken. I'm in the database now. Hmm. So I think um, I highly recommend there was a good podcast and, and maybe a guy that you should interview on your podcast when you have time. There's a guy named Patrick Wood. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of him. I've, uh, he, I've, heard of, I've heard many of these names and I have had not, not had any of them on the podcast. Yet. Yeah. So I've known, known Patrick for long time and uh he had i think he and his wife they had an airstream trailer and since they're made up the road here they spent a week with us about 10 years ago you know so we got to talk a lot and he has a new book out called the evil twins of transhumanism and technocracy Mm. he actually did an interview on monday uh so we're recording this on i don't know if i could say that we're recording this on august 10th is it the 10th or the 9th 9th yeah 9th so on monday the 7th he was on tom hughes uh hope for our times podcast and you can get it it's archived and in that i haven't listened to all of it but tom told me what he said so i trust tom and he said that when this beast system comes in place you know it's so when we look at the prophetic scriptures, and I was just listening to somebody today says, well, the beast system, it, it doesn't come about until after the abomination of desolation, you know, which depending on how you view this last seven year period, whether certainly that's a critical event. That's, that's sort of like one of the time markers that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, mm-hmm. you know, that look for that, that was spoken of by Daniel, the prophet. So that tells you a lot. Uh, trust Daniel, and you can trust that the the book of Daniel was written by Daniel, uh, because Jesus said it was, and he would know. And and so this these prophecies of Daniel kind of can be pivotal to all this end time thing. So we know from Revelation thirteen everything this this happens after the abomination of desolation. But when it happens, and I think this is the point Patrick was making, the system's all there. Okay, mm-hmm. the the whole system is there for that to be implemented. They just got to flip a switch. <clears throat> so what what you're seeing now is the convergence of them setting the system up, and yeah. you've got central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, uh, 
coming online, you have things like the WHO and G uh, group of 20 G20 or in whatever, whatever they call them. They're all talking about these digital passports tied to health. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know exactly how it plays out, but well, it's going to be, it's going to be ready to go. You know, it's not like, Oh, the abomination happens. Abomination of desolation happens. And then, the beast and false prophet kind of surround and say, well, you know, maybe we could implement this. Uh, can we develop a system to kind of track what everybody's hmm. it's going to be ready to go. That's the, that's the point I think. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know if this Lucifer ace is, it is part of it. I think it's, there's a lot of things going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you saw the guy from uh, Nokia, I think at the, uh, either World Government Summit or World Economic Forum, saying you know six, forget five G, okay, six G is coming. It's already being rolled out in some places, and the the ability of the data transfer. So I mean, you live here locally. Have you been out by those big server farms in New Albany? No, no, I have not. If I have, I I didn't realize it. Take a drive out. Take a drive out one sixty one. And get off at, uh, I think it's Beach Road. And on the north side, you got all the the limited companies stuff. Mm-hmm. Where, but you also have these massive Amazon server farms. And then as you go south of 161, you got the biggest warehouse truck center I've ever seen in my life. Right there. Mm. Then you drive on the left side, you'll see six giant server buildings. I I don't know. I haven't been out there for a couple of months. So the sixth one is supposed to be devoted to artificial intelligence. They're uh, already refurbishing the first two. They open in late 2019, early 2020, and they're already obsolete. So they're refurb. They have these electricians work. I mean, they're paying them an incredible amount of money. I mean, these guys can make like a hundred fifty, two hundred thousand $200,000 a year working out there as an electrician. Yeah. And so now go try to find an electrician to do something at your house in Columbus. Uh, And if you do find a person, you never tell anybody else about them (laughs) because, you know, then they won't be available when you need them. But, but these buildings, they're, they're six buildings and there is as long, they're 1200 feet long, almost a quarter mile long. They're as long as the empire state building is tall, Hmm. like sitting on their side and it's just server racks. And then Google's, so Facebook's got under $2 billion invested in those buildings. Google's spending like $4 billion right across the road to build server farms. And it's stuff in redundant backup generators and all that. I mean, drive down there and see it. Just do it some. It it should creep you out. As a friend of mine, I showed him some pictures of it. A pretty pretty good Bible prophecy guide. And he said, that's the mind of the beast right there. Yeah, well... Yeah, and I'm, they're all over the country. I'm sure all over the world. I'm sure it would uh, creep me out. I mean, everything that's going on with transhumanism and AI, I find to be particularly creepy. And I think of you know, uh, just the idea of being manifested in a physical way as it you know as we look into yeah. our there. And one of the things that kind of going back to some of our early conversations, we kind of look at this last thing I wanted to talk about, which is AI. One of the things I I was just flabbergasted. I was frustrated. Um, there was a it's, a, it's a great ministry. I'm not going to say the name of it, 
they're not they don't deal with end time stuff, but they they'll go through and they have like a panel of people and they'll talk about different news things and how Christians should view different things going on in the world. And they were talking about AI, and the, one of the gentlemen said, you know, that you know some of this looks concerning, but you know, hey, we don't need to be afraid of, of this. We don't need to worry about this. AI is just ones and zeros. And I, I just kind of scratched. Well, I thought that's kind of a naive I, view. So that you know, some of the things going on in the background, though, is you know, there have been some hints that quantum computing is kind of moving up. And then there was some reports this week that they were able to replicate some of the fusion, creating like energy from fusion reaction. Mm. Which is is sort of like harnessing the power of the sun on a miniaturized scale, which would totally upend the world, but would provide this incredible power for computers. And if they have quantum computers, I mean, so somebody said like, you know, the the AI we've been dealing with now is like first grade, Hmm. first graders. But even then, I don't know if you saw the, in in the and they're tying it to biology and so and so there's a big push to put ai into diagnosis and that type of thing and they're actually finding that the ai in terms of reading radiological exams is is in many cases doing better than the humans Hmm. but scott pelleg on 60 minutes did kind of a eye-opening segment probably early april and one of the things they talked about was they, for a long time, they wanted to create 3D structures of proteins. Because that, once they know the 3D structure of proteins, then they can devise medications to alter those proteins. So there's estimated in, in biology, <clears throat> biological life on Earth, there's 200 million proteins. And the word, the uh, rule of thumb was that it would take one PhD researcher five years to get the three-dimensional structure of one protein. Mm. So companies like NVIDIA, uh, it's a you know video chip. Um, and the, the processing that they're putting into computers is like, I mean, I had a Mac that was a year and a half old. And it would run out of battery in an hour hour and 15 minutes if I was using it on a plane. So I was always trying to find, you know, carrying batteries and plugs and all this thing or just giving up. I just got a new Mac and it's got that M2 Max chip in it. Mm -hmm. I used this thing when we went to California without plugging it in for six hours and I had 80% of the battery life left. That's a year and a half. NVIDIA on there, which has really been moved into artificial intelligence. And there's a great talk that Jason Wang, H-U-A-N-G, gave about NVIDIA's development. He says, we're compared to what we were doing five years ago, we're a thousand times faster. It's crazy. And within the next two or three years, we could be a thousand times faster than the, what we are now, which means in seven years, they would be a million times faster in processing stuff. 
And so when they did these, they finally, it took them a couple of years to figure out how to do the three-dimensional structure of proteins. And once they unlocked that, it literally, comparatively, they were able to do all 200 million of them in a short period of time, comparatively seconds. So they did a billion years of PhD research time in months, in a few months. That's insane. I, and I, But they're going to take that, they're going to apply it to DNA. That. They're going to apply it to other structures, RNA. I, I don't think people can even fathom the things that we're going to be seeing soon because of and, this acceleration. Yeah, and so this is sort of, I, I just caught this on the news or uh, a podcast I was listening to, to today that I believe the, the, what I call the Biden administration, uh, because I want to be accurate and reflect who I think is kind of running things in the background. Hmm. Um, they're coming out with a, a executive order regulation or something tomorrow on this subject that may be pretty significant. And, and so this, nobody's walking this back despite all the guys who expressed concerns in a letter, you know, a couple months ago. Now we need to, to, to stop this. We need to slow it down. We need to stop development at this point. It's not happening. It, it's not being dialed back. I mean, you think China's going to dial it back. You think North Korea is going to Iran's going to dial it back. We're, it, it, it's. I think it's very fortuitous. I have not seen it. I don't know that I'll see it. I don't really go to movies anymore. That the Oppenheimer movie came out right now because the arms race that we are in on AI and what that's going to do is orders of magnitude beyond the development of nuclear weapons in World War II. Yeah. Now, factor that into an end-time scenario. So all of this stuff, uh, so the, here's the phrase I use, you know, from the old Hemingway, I think the sun also rises, the couple guys are talking. And the guy goes, well, how did, how did you go bankrupt? And the guy says, well, two ways. Gradually, then suddenly. <laughs> and then all at once, yeah. Yeah, and, and so that's what happens. So so this thing, so like this, the beast system, don't know exactly what it's going to be like. Don't know all the elements of it. But we do know that when it's ready to go, when it's going to be implemented, it's ready. It's not It's not like they're going to build it from scratch. Right. All of the, the foundational work is going to be done. And so that's why I think it's important to watch what's going on. So I, I would disagree very strongly with the guy who said, well, sure, there will be some good things come about from AI, you know. And look, I have four artificial joints. I'm not above sort of enhanced human stuff within reason. Okay. Mm -hmm. I may change my life. Uh, artificial joints. And so I'm, I'm not above saying, watching that happen, but I'm just saying is that there's a dark side to this. Oh yes. Uh, I agree. Yeah. 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 One last question. And I, sure. I'll let you go. Um, connected to AI transhumanism, you know, um, the artificial person, if you will. Um, so I don't know what your sort of view is on the Nephilim. You know, obviously there's a lot of <laughs> 
disagreement on that in the church as well. But, uh, you know, I kind of favor something was going on there, you know, whether angels and, and people were actually having offspring or there was some kind of ritualistic, strange, weird things going on. So I think of, you know, you think of the global judgment, the first global judgment and, uh, you know, many Christians believing that part of the reason for the flood was to wipe out this crazy stuff that was going on. So now we have what you're talking about with AI transhumanism and this acceleration and what they're doing with DNA. So I yeah. wonder, are we going to see a repeat of the, some of these crazy things that they were doing potentially if, if that, you know, viewpoint is correct back no. in Noah's day, the days of Noah? I'm aware of the different theories. I, I do sort of lean towards a supernatural interpretation of Genesis chapter six. Something was going on. Um, and so then when Jesus says that it will be as in the days of Noah, what does that mean? You know, does it so go back and study what it was like in the days leading up to the flood or the days of Lot? Look at what was going on leading up to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, of the three angels that showed up to talk to, to Abram there at Hebron, at Mamre, mm -hmm. two of them left and went to Sodom. But it was two of those, the, the two, two of the, the one didn't. And I think that was the Lord myself. That was a Christophany, mm. uh, pre-incarnate Jesus. But, you know, it's kind of interesting. So, um, I mean, you, you know, like I said, you, you can go in Israel, you can go to these places where these things happen. You can go to Shiloh where Samuel heard the voice of the Lord. You know, you can you can go and look at the, in fact, I was just seeing a video the other night. They've, they're pretty much sure they have identified the gate area where Eli would have fallen over backwards when he heard what his sons were doing. I just read that my devotions. It's it's very interesting. So it, it's it, it's all connected. Like I said, it's accelerating, converging, and then I always say there's a logistics aspect to it, and then there's also the understanding part. The wise will understand, as Daniel says, and so we we should be studying these things. We should be paying attention to what's going on. You know, we we can get out of balance, uh, but not talking about it is really out of balance. I talking about it too much. I'm not sure is out of balance at this point, given where we are. Look at geopolitics, economy. You know, like you said, every major category seems to be fitting into this in time scenario mm -hmm. that we have patterns and ideas about these things. Now, we don't know exactly how it's all going to come about. Like, I don't think anybody knows. I, I object to some of my friends who've said, you know, uh, state-approved treatments for Charlie Vector are the mark of the beast. And not, I just don't, I don't buy that. First of all, we don't know if the beast is here yet, although some people think he is. Um, so I, I sort of take a. I think I've mentioned this before. I have baskets, so I have my my antichrist basket, but there's like sub baskets within the antichrist thing, you know. So that's this guy, this area this thing. <clears throat> so I kind of throw what's happening into each of those baskets because yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to call and say, Hey, this, this guy is it. And then he dies or something like that. Yeah. Uh, that I don't think that helps the the whole thing. So like, yeah, pay attention to this guy, but pay attention to what he's saying and what people are doing in response to it, whether he's the guy or not, that's I think more important. 
Yeah, I mean, we're called to be watchmen and to be alert and to be paying attention. I mean, that's really clear, I think, in Scripture. Um, yeah. yeah, next time I bring you on, because, uh, I mean, there, there's never going to be a, a short supply of things to talk about. But <laughs> yeah, so I appreciate it. If you want to have me back, I'd be glad to do it sometime. And uh... we'll get into Charlie Vector next time. I, I think that the I wanted to talk about Revelation 18 and the merchants of the earth. I, I was curious to hear some of your takes on that. But like I said, there's there's so much to talk about, John. I appreciate right. you coming on. I appreciate you giving up your time and just letting the conversation go where yeah. where, where it's going to go. Yeah, if people want to catch us, they could. Um, most of my stuff is up at the uh, Fellowship Bible Chapel YouTube channel, also on Rumble at Real FBC. We also have an app, Fellowship Bible Chapel. And then there are different ministries like Hope for Our Times, Moriel, uh, RTN TV, um, that have videos of mine up. So if you just do a search for me on YouTube or Rumble, some stuff should come up, including some stuff that. Uh, you know, maybe people say bad things about me, but, uh, you know, you can't, can't stop them from, from doing that really. So they're wrong by the way, <laughs> but that's, uh, you know, that's sort of the price of, um, getting known, I guess. You mean people said bad things about you on the internet? I cannot believe it. Yeah. You know, there's fast, bad, bad information on the internet. Hard to believe. <laughs> yeah. So, I'll, have to, I'll have to try and bring you back on maybe around or after uh, Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, and we can talk more then. Okay. That'll be great. Thanks, Casey. Thanks, John. You have been listening to this late hour. Your contribution helps pay our fees, improve our equipment, and build better content. It is my hope that your continued support of our show may bring future interviews and exclusives. Our goal is to always be improving our show so that the church may be strengthened in our mission to bring salt and light to this present darkness. May God richly bless you.